0: From the Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story. This is a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas, and my name is Mark Fennell.
1: My name is Amani al and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of MuslimGirl.com. I think the earliest career that I wanted to aspire to was to be a lawyer. Growing
0: up in New Jersey, Amani al was a pretty normal kid. And then 9-11 happened, and her life changed forever. She spent her teenage years navigating growing racism and Islamophobia in America, and at the age of 17, she founded a blog called Muslim Girl. The site gave young Muslim women a platform to discuss all of the things, periods to politics, and over the years, it transformed from a part-time passion project to a full-time social movement, logging millions of hits every year. Amani, welcome to the show. Your childhood seems to have a dividing line. Is the world before 9-11 and the world after 9-11. Before we hit that moment, I want to talk about your life before. What was the world like for you before that moment? What, what did it feel like?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I ever was really aware of the fact that I belong to a different people and whatnot. For me, you know, like my upbringing was kind of just like anyone else. I'm a Jersey girl straight through. You know, there's a lot of connotation for that, what that means, you know, growing up on the Jersey shore, spending all of your summers on the boardwalk, yeah. but it's literally like the all-American childhood. Really just like my life revolved around just riding bicycles in my neighborhood, finding my friends um, and hanging out. Really, we weren't really aware of any other differences between us besides really like what we had for long- Lunch or what we like
0: to do after school. The moment when you realise you were different or the world told you that you were different was, mm-hmm. was 9-11. Is that a reasonable assessment?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely in, in the coming the coming days after 9-11 happened. In 2001, that was the first time that I was called a racial slur. And it was actually in my fourth grade classroom by one of my fellow fourth grade classmates. I was sitting in our, our classroom and all of a sudden, one of my students said to me, your people throw rocks at tanks. And then just like all of the classmates that were around me just like erupted into laughter. There was one student um, who was like a, Jew, a Jewish girlfriend of mine. And she just started laughing at me. And so they were kind of aware of something that I was oblivious to at that point. Um, and you know, like, of course, my face turned red and I was, I felt humiliated and I ran home after school to my father. Um, and I was telling him, you know, dad, you, my, my friends said at school that my people throw rocks at tanks. Uh, that was really the moment that I became painfully aware of the fact that I belonged to a people and that that was something that I somehow should feel ashamed about. And then my dad looked at me you know, and he, he felt sad for me. You know, he, he just smiled at me and he said, that's something you should be proud of your people throw rocks at tanks. That was kind of the precursor to this whole new journey of navigating my identity, who I was and my relationship to the society around me.
0: And at a certain point, your dad made a decision or your family made a decision to move to Jordan, which Mm -hmm. is back home for him. But you were born Mm -hmm. in America. Mm -hmm. Your identity is American. What was your first impression of Jordan as you walked in there as a place to live?
1: Oh my God. It was just like noise, action everywhere. You know, like I was just uh, greeted by family, uh, Falafel and shawarma in the streets, you know, the hustle and bustle of the city life, beautiful Arabic music. And really what I encountered was it was my first impression of the Middle East, having grown up through an onslaught of media misrepresentation about Islam and the Muslim world. And... What I had encountered was such hospitality, such a generous and kind people. And uh, really, I was just welcomed with open arms. And I was, for the first time, able to get an impression of what the Middle East was really like on the ground, what the reality was. Uh, And it just made me really aware of the the contrast uh, between that and how it was being portrayed in the media in the West.
0: Were you still in contact with friends back in the United States?
1: Um, I tried to remain in contact with them, but I actually was living in parts of Jordan where internet was uh, a luxury, and it was really difficult to to get in contact with them. So it was almost as if I was navigating that experience in isolation, which might not have necessarily been a bad thing because for the first time I was able to really, you know, learn about my, my heritage and my religion directly from the people who practiced it.
0: Did you have a sense of what was being said about Muslim people in in the United States? Did you have an awareness of that? Right.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, I think that That misrepresentation of who we are was the most alienating part of my experience growing up. 9-11 for me happened when I was nine years old. So imagine all the challenges of being a kid going through puberty, you know, going through your formative years, trying to figure out who you are, going through insecurities, self-esteem issues, and then having to do so, you know, with this added layer of of Islamophobia under a complete assault on our identities with all of society around us telling us, you know, you, you're a terrorist. You don't belong here. You're someone, you're different. That was a a really traumatizing way to to grow up.
0: Did Jordan ever feel like home or did you always sense deep down you would go back to America?
1: That actually was a huge crisis for me. And actually, I kind of forgot about that, about how much that question of home really just manifested itself in that experience for me. Um, Until about like a couple of weeks ago, I went back home to my my family's house in New Jersey. um, And I went into my high school bedroom and I found an old journal that I kept when I was in Jordan, when I had moved there. You know, like writing my entire life was always Kind of an exercise of survival for me. Writing was my way of navigating through those experiences and those emotions. And I found this drawing that I had made on one of the journal pages um, when I was in Jordan, and it showed that my hands were cuffed to Jordan, but my heart was dragging me to America. I was like floating, trying to like get back there. I just wrote on the paper, like, what is home? And I think that really just encapsulates a lot of the experiences that especially kids of immigrant families uh, really have to go through, right? Like for us, it's that we're two American and for home but we're too different to be American. Um, And really just hovering in that middle ground is, it can be very, very confusing, but it's also a space where a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting observations and discoveries can happen.
0: At this point, you're also, grappling is probably not the right word, but you're you're processing your faith, what it is you believe, what it is you want to show to the world as well. What was going through your head at at those days when you first went into Jordan? Was faith present and ready in front of you or was it something you would process a little bit later on?
1: Um, No, it definitely was. It was definitely, very present. I mean, you know, as soon as I stepped foot in Jordan, I would hear the Idan, the call to prayer, go off in the streets, you know, from um, nearby uh, minarets and things like that. That was the experience that was the most eye-opening for me, is that I had access to Islam, you know, at at its base, at at its core. Um, And that really just opened up a, a whole new process of understanding what Islam really was for me. Because at that point, when we had moved to Jordan, I had felt so isolated in school that, you know, I didn't wear a headscarf at that time. By the time I got to middle school, I started hiding my faith from my peers and my educators because I was so terrified of what they would think of me because of everything that was going on in the news. Um, And so in that way, you know, being in Jordan and being just confronted face to face with the truth of what what my religion really stood for, I think that was uh, revolutionary for me. You know, it was at that point when I had visited Jordan, when I finally was able to learn about what my religion stands for, that I ended up falling in love with it. Um, And I made it so clear to me that this was a religion and identity that Islamophobia and our society was really trying to pull me away from and, and cause me to really denounce for my entire life. And that was the point when I decided to start wearing a headscarf. You know, it, For me, it was me putting on the headscarf was my reclamation of my identity. It was saying, I'm proud to be a part of this people, and I will identify as these, as these people, and this will be my public defiance in the face of Islamophobia when I head back home to America.
0: What was it about it that spoke to you? What was it that you found within your faith that really spoke to you that you felt proud of all of a sudden?
1: Definitely the history, the tenets and the principles of of what it stands for, you know, Just how much Islam values gender equality, which is a statement that bewilders a lot of people because of the way that they've always heard Islam talked about in the news. Um, but the way that I learned it is that gender equality is uh, one of the principles that Islam was founded upon. Um, and that really informed, you know, my feminism. Also at that very early age when I got back to the states you know I started identifying very publicly as feminist even though at that point I didn't even really know what feminism was about I just knew it meant that men and women are equal and that's what Islam taught me you know for me that really was the the core of it
0: the decision to wear the headscarf you've written about how it was something that you wanted people to see before they spoke to you, before they met you, they could see uh, your faith Mm -hmm. coming a mile away. Why is that important?
1: I mean, I think that for me, it was a rejection of of that adversity that was kind of, you know, a veil on top of me in and of itself. Uh, And and for me, it was kind of making it on my own terms, you know, that this is my religion and that this is something that I will put front and center uh, in spite of every element around me telling me that it was something that I had to reject. And, you know, it's much easier said than done. That was my decision to start to, to start wearing it for that purpose. But when I did come back to the states, I had a breakdown before my first day of school. I was going to rip it off of my head because of the fact that it was so crazy to and, and revealing to have my religion out there at a time that was uh, espoused with so much animosity towards Muslims. Um, and I was scared of re-entering school with all these kids and, and these teachers that had known me beforehand. Now suddenly becoming hyper aware of the fact that I was Muslim, but. Interestingly enough, I mean that experience is what led to Muslim Girl uh, taking shape in the first place. You know, like I got back to school, I, I did decide finally to keep my scarf on and and reenter um, high school in in the states. What ended up happening was that ironically, my community there, because they were already familiar with me and now suddenly they were aware that I was a Muslim, they started coming to me with all of their questions about Islam and things that they were hearing on the news. So I suddenly was placed in a position of ambassadorship. In order to have the answers for them, I started really studying Islam, trying to find all the answers and even studying, you know, like the inner workings of what Islamophobes were saying about my religion, what they were taking out of context and what they were holding against us. So I knew how to answer to that. And, you know, by extension, that's really what presented me with with the thought that, hey, you know, a lot of other people might have these questions too. Why not make this information accessible to many other people beyond just my small hometown as well?
0: You talked a little bit earlier about moments of bullying and ab- abuse that you had with your classmates. I'm wondering, did you ever have a moment of reconciliation? Did you ever have a moment where you either confronted them with what they had done? or they came up to you and realized what they had done was wrong?
1: I don't think I ever did have that moment. Um, but I did have a moment recently this past year uh, when I did actually run into one of my bullies from high school. Uh, and at that point, you know, I had this book that was published about being a Muslim girl and I have this <laughs> I'm really on successful world. upset. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of just like, we didn't even exchange words with each other. Um, we kind of, it was just kind of like a, a mutual understanding of like where we, how far we've come and kind of how those experiences took shape. I'm not gonna lie, it was a really gratifying moment for me. <laughs> (laughs) Definitely.
0: Did you ever, have you ever played it through in your head, how you would navigate that conversation? Let's say you're, you were locked in a room with one of those people. Have you ever imagined how you would execute that conversation now with the confidence you have now that perhaps you didn't necessarily have at that age?
1: I'll be honest that that has never crossed my mind. Really? Yeah. Because now it's like, we're so beyond that point. It's like, I understand what role those experiences played in my life and shaping me into who I am now. And the issues that we have to confront now are just like, so much bigger than those interpersonal conflicts that I had when I was younger. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, in, in the Trump era, we have bigger fish to fry now <laughs> than me confronting my high school bullies. So no, I think I've been really distracted, uh, from that thought.
0: How much did the muslimgirl.com domain cost you?
1: Probably like seven or nine bucks. <laughs> uh, and that was the muslimgirl.net domain, actually. The muslimgirl.com we just acquired recently over the past couple of years after uh, we really started being able to like gain more momentum and things like that. But uh, I think that's also a testament to how few spaces there were online for Muslim women, that muslimgirl.net was available. And I snagged it at like 14 years old, right? So it was like definitely a, a very important opportunity.
0: So initially it wasn't the kind of the vast publication that it is now. Initially it was basically a, a a blog. It was a live journal, wasn't mm-hmm. it?
1: Yeah. So what were you writing? Early on, I mean, we were basically it was it was me and my friends from the mosque in my hometown and we were just writing about experiences as American high school girls that were Muslim. Um and I think that like one of the first articles that we published was actually to us at that time super taboo. Uh it was about how to worship when you get your period. Like while you're menstruating, and for us at the time, it was like, oh my god, I can't believe we're talking about this publicly. It was something only whispered whispered about amongst girlfriends and things like that. To the extent where one of the writers actually said, like, please don't publish my name with this, you know, <laughs> um, you know. But now that those types of conversations are so normal to be had out in the open, and and we go so far beyond those types of uh, topics now, uh, that that really is just symbolic of where we started. The whole point was that we wanted to have those conversations that we have amongst our girlfriends in a way that really was out in the open, that was able to build a community um, and, and really just bring together this generation of of Muslim girls that were kind of bonded by this post 9-11 experience that really just dictated what our experience was like growing up in America after that. What has surprised
0: you in, in the... Massive growth of it. What didn't you see coming?
1: Actually, I think after one of my first appearances on CNN in the States on primetime news, one of my friends from the mosque, from my hometown, that, that was one of our earliest writers. Um, she had texted me and she had like seen the, the broadcast and everything. And she said, Amani, this is exactly what we had envisioned. You know, like five, six years ago, we always wish that we would see people that look like us as the talking heads on the news. And now you're the one that's the talking head on the news. Mm. And to me, that's something that I never first saw. You know, like this issue of misrepresentation in the media, it was probably one of the most pervasive conflicts that I had to navigate growing up. And it was something that I, I was always really, really passionate about, but I don't think that I ever first saw it would be work that we did that would contribute to its emancipation. And it feels really good to know that, you know, we're we're kind of creating change there. We didn't just like let it continue the way it was.
0: When did you realise that it it ceased to be just a thing for you and your friends? When did you realise it was really speaking to, I guess, a generation?
1: I mean, that's a hard question because it's been such an evolution over yeah. time. And I think the entire time we've chosen to just remain true to ourselves. You know, we've we've never tried to cater to media. Um, we really just wanted to have the conversations we needed to have and make it about us, you know, finally have a space that was about the conversations we needed to have. But I think that a turning point for us uh, where we we're just like, whoa, OK, this might be something really important is when two years ago we got our first republication request from a major magazine and we had uh, just published an essay. Uh, in response to Michelle Obama's visit to Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and she chose not to wear a headscarf and American news was going crazy you know like feminist stance Michelle Obama's you know like standing up for Saudi women and stuff like that um, and for us we were just like whoa like that was only news in the states you know even in Saudi Arabia it wasn't a big deal that she didn't wear a headscarf because Saudi Arabian women have been leading uh, movements for equality in their own societies and they go largely ignored in Western media so we published an alternative opinion saying like thanks Michelle but and then we explained Everything else that's been happening that you know Americans and Westerners are not even aware of, because we presented that alternative opinion uh, that wasn't really found anywhere else. Other outlets started coming to us then um, to really be able to find that representation and, and put forth the narratives that we were really trying to elevate. Since.
0: Uh, Muslim Girl has taken off and become a sort of media empire, what, what's the biggest misconception that you encounter these days? Because the, the perception of you mm-hmm. and the perception of the website has changed mm-hmm. very significantly. But now you're a publisher. With that comes kind of business opportunities and business challenges. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what are the misconceptions you're encountering now as distinct from the sort of stuff you got when you were younger?
1: Um, one thing that I find really interesting is that like on Twitter recently, mm-hmm. people were starting to refer to me almost as if I'm like the Rachel Dolezal of Muslim women. And that I'm like too liberal to actually be a Muslim Arab. Um, and that I'm actually like a white woman that wears a headscarf for the views and things like that because we want to believe that Muslim women are like, they can't have progressive values. They can't say the things that we're saying on the website and things like that. That's become more and more prevalent. It's like now the silencing tactic for what we have to say is, okay, sure. You guys are dealing with discrimination. Aw, but. Violence in Muslim countries, but da, da, da but da, da da. Um as if, you know, we should just shut up and be quiet about the violence that we're also enduring in, in Western societies because it's somehow superior to the violence in other parts of the world. Um, and of course, that's just an extension of the very racist ways that we view Muslim issues and, and just global politics in general. And and I think that also speaks to just the way that we view Muslims, right? It's that we as the West want to take credit for those types of values whenever we find them. You know, like you only have these types of uh, opinions because you happen to grow up in America. And it's like, no, actually, there's an entire legacy of feminist scholarship within Islam, generations long. Um, and, and, you know, just we as the West, we want to talk about it as if it's an isolated case, but this is literally what Islam's all about. And we just, unfortunately, a lot of times in in, in countries like America, we kind of just want to have deaf ears to it.
0: You alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I was really curious about the, the moment when you started to call yourself a feminist, what it meant to you and, and how your, I guess, your understanding of that has changed over the years. So, what did it mean to you when you first started owning that term?
1: I think that my entire life I knew that I was a feminist, but I didn't really understand what feminism was all about. I just knew that, you know, it meant equality. Um, I knew that my religion kind of spoke to that, it informed my opinion on that. But I, it wasn't until I got to high school that I really publicly was just like, yeah, I'm a feminist. So what? That was the first time that I discovered that that's kind of like a taboo word to say. You know, it's the F word. Uh, and a lot of my friends were just like, oh my God, you're a feminist. Do you hate men? You know? I think that really just my understanding of feminism. Feminism grew as I got older, and by extension, Muslim girl also grew with us. Right, like by the time I got to college, and my friends and I, we, most of us, we went to college together. That's when we encountered intersectional feminism. That's when we started learning feminist texts, feminist literature, um, and then the content on the website really started evolving with us too. Instead of it just being high school American Muslim girls blogging about what their lives were like, now it was us cultivating this feminist analyses um, about what our lived. Experience Experiences like and its relation to society and politics and culture and, um, and and just continue to really evolve with us and I think that that's my favorite part about this entire initiative is that it really just organically captured in real time this experience it chronicled this evolution of our identities during one of the most important moments in American history
0: on Muslim Girl you have a, an opportunity to join the Muslim Girl Click mm-hmm. I'm so fascinated <laughs> by this so so where did that idea I guess Let's start off by explaining what it is, yeah. and then the w- what was the origin of that idea?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Muslim Girl Click is what we refer to all the women that make up our team, um, from collegiate chapter presidents, to writers, to bloggers, to editors. We call ourselves the Muslim Girl Click, and the way that that came about is because we were always the girls that felt like we didn't belong, right? And and really, just like the, the word click kind of espouses that type of uh, feeling, and so we wanted to find a place where we did belong, where it was like for us. Um, and so, it we call it a click, but it spans. Far beyond our website, obviously, it's like it's in the digital space, um, and it spans far beyond boundaries or any borders and things like that. And you know, it's it's always fun for girls to really feel like they're cultivating a sisterhood by being a part of our team.
0: As issues come up around the world that speak like so directly to Muslim girls kind of remit. I'm talking about things like the France burqa ban and stuff yeah. like that. How do you evaluate? What are you going to weigh in on? What are you going to add to the conversation or or what do you want to step out of? Cause I, I think there's an interesting question there. we like, because you are so unique, right? There's got to be a conversation about what conversations do we want to inject ourselves into and what do we want to step out of?
1: Um, I mean, I think that's the whole point of creating our own platform. It's for us to really cultivate an influence and steering the conversation ourselves, one thing that I think has been across the board for a lot of Muslim women is that we're just sick and tired of talking about our headscarves. Yeah. We're we're sick and tired of being reduced to what we wear. Um, it's like, it's so funny that that still happens with us. Like people think that it's okay when it wouldn't be okay for any other women. I think that uh, we definitely seek opportunities for dialogue and for discourse when there is an opportunity to kind of change hearts and minds and to inform opinions and to take down stereotypes. Um, but I never read the comments. <laughs> <laughs> I never get into Facebook or Twitter debates, just don't do it. Um, and I don't give the trolls any mind because it's just too exhausting, you know? Was there
0: a moment when you decided you were not going to read comments anymore?
1: Actually, yeah. I think that uh, over the years, we have revisited the comment section on, on the Muslim Girl website because it started getting just so violent and writers were getting personally attacked. People were just so hateful and rude um, that we actually all came together and we asked ourselves, like, should we just disable all the comments on the website? Um, and then we reached the conclusion, like, no, we can can't because the comment section is also where all those conversations are taking place yeah. you know for every comment that we get from a troll there's like five ten comments of people like pushing back against that speaking to those types of misconceptions and there's value in that
0: is there anything you can do just to like on a technical level change the system so that you know sign-ups and, and unified identities and stuff like that, that that can encourage people to be less of a dick <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm trying to think about the wording wording of this. (laughs) Less of a dick. Let's go with that. Yeah,
1: I mean, if anyone out there has a service in mind, please, I am all ears. (laughs) But unfortunately, I think I've just come to terms with the fact that that's the double edged sword of the Internet. You know, that's its nature. Just like how it creates uh, a space for us to be able to put our voices out there and have a fighting chance to be heard. It also gives that same opportunity for people that espouse hateful attitudes, unfortunately. That's really why we need to just talk back even louder.
0: I just want to come back to Muslim Girl Click for a second, because it's Happens when you sign up for the Muslim Girl Click is you get an array of resources. What we'll, we'll kind of walk me through what happens when you become part of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, for example, like our team of, of writers and editors. First of all, we just have like such an extraordinary team of powerful Muslim women that have absolutely no problem speaking truth to power. Our click right now is made up of seven editors and over seventy women uh, from around the world, uh, a writers network of girls that are just eager to really use the written word to put their voices out there and, and elevate their narrative. You know, once you're a part of Muslim Girl, that's I think the thing that everyone gets the most excited about, that they value the most, is the sisterhood that comes with it. We have uh, many group chats, uh, many resources where everyone can kind of come together and intimately talk about stuff that they really don't have a space to talk about outside of that. One story that I heard from one of our writers really just hit the nail on the head for me about what this is all about. When she joined the team, she was one of our youngest writers. She was uh, an outgoing high school senior. She was about to enter college, um, and she said that in one of her first days in in her lecture class, the <laughs> She heard the professor basically just teaching, talking about Islam in a way that was extremely offensive, extremely, extremely inaccurate. And she hesitated for a second. You know, she got really um, anxious, but she found the courage to raise her hand and correct the professor in front of her entire class of, of young, freshman, malleable minds. And she said that the moment that she raised her hand to correct him, it was because she knew that she had a Muslim girl army behind her. Um, and I think that's, that's really the whole the whole beauty behind it, is that it's, it's self-esteem built It's reminding us that we're not alone in this.
0: There's been a lot of conversation, particularly online, actually, these days about, I guess, the changing shape of feminism from sort of traditional understanding, which was very much Mm -hmm. as kind of a white feminist movement Mm -hmm. to now something which is intersectional, where Mm -hmm. there's a a variety of different identities at play Mm -hmm. there. What would you most like to change about the conversation we have today about feminism?
1: I mean, we absolutely need to recognise race we absolutely need to recognize anti-blackness in these spaces as well. We need to recognize how different women are experiencing different issues that for many of us come down to our livelihoods, right? Um, that was one of the biggest issues with the Women's March, for example. Like, I was there in Washington, D.C. on the day of this historic protest in, in American history. And at that moment, a lot of women of color disengaged from the entire protest itself because they felt like they weren't represented there, that it was primarily white women marching in these streets, that didn't give a damn about Black Lives Matter, for example, that didn't care when someone was getting shot up in the streets and they were largely absent. But suddenly everyone is up in arms because the president uh, used the word pussy when referring to women. Meanwhile, um, you know, a lot of women of color, they're literally putting their lives on the line because they can't hide the color of their skin. And so I think that in in order for us to really propel the movement forward, we have to break open spaces for women of different lived experiences, different backgrounds, and really elevate them as well. For all
0: of his stories, Faults has Trump provided a, a flashpoint for the intersexual feminist movement for people of color to kind of to activate that might not
1: have been there in years prior. Honestly, I think that Trump was more so evidence of that reality. Okay. You know, because uh, the majority of white women did vote Trump in. It wasn't women of color that voted for him, right? Um, and so I think that that really just proved that there is this huge wedge within just womanhood itself about whose voices are really rising to the surface, who is being represented in our society. I think that if anything, we should use it as a learning moment.
0: If you could change anything about America today, I know, right? (laughs) So like the easy questions, right? If you could change anything about— wait, how much time do we have again? Okay, I'm gonna give you like a magic wand. Uh (laughs) You can do anything you want. The flick of the wand. What would you
1: change? Oh my god. I mean, how do? How can I even pinpoint? Like, how do you take down institutional racism?
0: That's a great question. Let's answer that one. How yeah. do you take down institutional racism? Yeah, I mean, racism?
1: I, I don't know. Like, that's a huge question mark. But I think that that's probably one of the biggest issues with, with, uh, America today is that even with the protections of our constitution, we still somehow find ways to apply those rights to some, to certain people and not others. And I think that that's a really huge problem, right? Like, even when the discussion of police brutality comes up, which is obviously an issue of anti-blackness, um, you know, people always, uh, want to, talk about like the good cop. Not all cops are the same. Not all of them are the bad apples and things like that. But it's not about the individuals. It's about the system, the systemic racism that's just really embedded within America. I mean, the country itself was built on on slavery. The whole point was that we wanted to design a constitution that tiptoed around the livelihoods of black people. Um, And so we really have to get down to the root of that if we want to encounter any type of change. But just attempting to build off of it, attempting to just elect people into office, uh, hoping that they're going to reflect the opinion. Of the people, without really looking at the framework itself and how justice is administered, um, then we really—it's going to be futile.
0: As you've been in Australia, you've met plenty people, I'm guessing, Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly as you've met Australian. Muslim girls, mm-hmm. what's the feedback been like for you?
1: Well, first of all, it's so cool to see that there is such a huge following for a Muslim girl in Australia. I did not know that. Um, but there have been so many young Muslim women that I've been meeting at, at these events that I've, I've had the opportunity to do out here. One woman that I actually really struck up a really great friendship with uh, over the past several weeks has been Yasmin abdul Magid. And of course, she has a very distinct experience.
0: <laughs> very, very right? distinct experience. Yeah,
1: being a, a Muslim woman of color, uh, a very vocal and a very visible one From her, of course, you know, she's she literally got driven out of the country because of the hate that she received just for speaking out uh, her truth. Um, and I think that that is something that not only applies to Australian society, but also just in, in the West and in Europe and America as a whole. It's like whenever Muslim women start to look, sound, act outside of the box of what's expected of us, we get shut down. And yet somehow th- these societies pride themselves on being, uh, you know, like the founding places for liberation. For freedom, um, and so I think that that is probably a, a universal experience for a lot of us. It's like we are held to a certain standard of, you know, the extent of what we can say um, when we we want to talk back even louder.
0: Is that why it's important to be? visible to talk and to and to kind of change that perception one media appearance at a time?
1: Yeah, I think so. But at the same time, I think it, it really sucks that Muslims are being relegated to that role because we shouldn't have to constantly have have to teach people that we're human beings. You know, I think that it's really everyone's individual responsibility to not be racist, to get the information that they need to educate themselves. And I think that one way to do that is definitely being conscious of the media that we consume, right? Sure, Muslims Muslims are, you know, trying to make media appearances happen and and really reach these audiences, but they shouldn't have to go out to these corporate news that are rejecting them in the first place to be able to get those messages across. Um, I think that one of the most important ways that people can really open up their minds and and learn about the issues at hand is by consuming media from the communities that they're trying to learn about. If you're interested in learning about Muslim issues, if you're interested in talking about Muslims and and the policies that are being shaped around them, then go to a Muslim website, you know, go to Muslim Resources here about it from the people themselves, about what they have to say about it, how it's impacting them, um, and don't just assume that you know everything.
0: Do you ever get tired of being part of everyone else's learning curve?
1: It's kind of the walk of life that I've chosen. So I'm I'm always really open to it. But it, of course, gets really exhausting to have to reaffirm your humanity over and over again. Right. Like I'm not here so I can get into a debate about whether or not you should regard me as a human being. You should treat me with dignity. I'm here because I want to take down the stereotypes that have been kind of ingrained in the public eye because of media misrepresentation for so long. Um, but anything beyond that, that's really where our allies need to step up and really just stand up for us. it
0: has been a single piece that you've clicked publish on on Muslim Girl that you're especially proud of?
1: Yeah, I mean, every day there's something being published on our website that I'm really proud of. But I think that one of the essays that really made a lot of waves uh, and was one of the most read uh, essays on our website in, t- in 2016 was a personal essay written by a trans Muslim woman convert. And she referred to Allah with the she pronoun which was mind-blowing for a lot of Muslims and non-Muslims alike. But to me, that just reaffirmed the need for our space in the first place. Like, that's really what we're all about. It's taking the marginalized narratives, the ones marginalized even within our own religious community, and bringing them to the surface. And in doing so, the point is to show that we aren't one homogenous group that we don't all practice Islam the same, that Muslim women, there's no two Muslim women that are alike, that we come from different backgrounds and lived experiences, and that Muslim women literally come from every walk of life on the planet. Um, and the more that we show that, the more we can take down this conception that we are a monolith, because the first step to dehumanizing an entire group of people is to treat them like they're all one giant group. And of course, that's far from the case. And the
0: fascinating thing about Muslim girls, it fosters lots of different opinions and lots, lots of different points of view. Have you ever gotten pushed back from within your own community. Um, Oh,
1: every day. In that
0: particular realm, right, Mm -hmm. of feedback from within your community, Mm -hmm. what has surprised you in terms of what people were were just not ready for or they they didn't accept?
1: There are a lot of issues that I guess can be really challenging for more traditional or conservative Muslims to really be confronted with. Uh, Literally, just on my way to to Australia, when I was traveling here, I got a notification for a new message uh, saying, you know, this website, uh, Amani Al-Khattabah's website is really reaching new heights of blasphemy me uh for touting all these pro-lgBTq opinions um, but also I think that what's surprising to me is this concept like one of the one of the uh, biggest criticisms we get is why the need for feminism when we have Islam because yeah Muslims do fundamentally believe that gender equality is embedded within our religion so why adopt these quote-unquote Western movements of feminism if we already have our religion to really um, hold on to and my response to that is sure but in today's day and age that's called feminism You know, that's the movement that we that we need. People understand when we say like Islam is a feminist religion, they can grasp that concept much more quickly than to try to get into the historic background of Islam and how it it really espoused gender equality through the years. Um, And it just doesn't make sense to me. Right. It's like, okay, like you, you are feminist because you're a Muslim, you're practicing Muslim. So why not use the F word? Uh, And I think that that's something that's not even exclusive to our religion. Right. That uh, adversity that the feminist movement is experiencing right now is really universal uh, and and all the preconceived notions that kind of are attached to that identity.
0: When people brace at the saying that uh, Islam is a feminist religion, do you understand why people find that confusing and confounding?
1: Sure, because all they ever hear about in, on the news is that Muslim women all wear headscarves, and they do so because they're forced to wear it, and they walk behind a male relative wherever they go and things like that. That's part of the problem, right? Like, First of all, not all Muslim women wear headscarves. Second of all, not all Muslim women are forced to wear a headscarf. You know, the, the whole point of the concept of the headscarf itself is that it's wrapped in personal choice, just like any other point of the religion. It, I think that it comes back down to, for example, for us, American exceptionalism and also our Orientalist uh, lens, the way that we view other parts of the world. We want to be able to point a finger at other cultures and be like, oh my God, you guys are so misogynistic. Like, look at what you're doing and stuff like that. But, Patriarchy is universal, and it just takes on different forms and different cultures. but unfortunately, when we talk about Muslims, we always attribute patriarchy to the religion or to the culture itself um, and not as this global system that has been really imposed upon us.
0: Do you find yourself spending a lot of time unpicking that interaction between the cultural and the faith dimension for, for people?
1: yeah, of course, of course it's uh, sometimes it, people already have such a one dimensional understanding of Other people, um, that just getting into the nuances of it is, is really difficult sometimes, you know, and, and that's something that the media has done. It's robbed the conversation of that nuance. People just want to be able to say, you know, like blanket statements like, all Muslims are terrorists. All terrorists are Muslims and things like that. All Muslim women are oppressed. Um, and then when you get into the thick of it, once you do start having those conversations, it's mind blowing for people. It really opens up a whole new world. Uh, and, you know, I think that it's really important for us to continue telling the individual stories of different people because that's what reminds us of our shared universal experiences, that it's not just limited to a specific religion or a specific culture, um, but those are really the experiences that bond us as humans.
0: You mentioned earlier that um, you got notifications on an article. I was wondering, are you capable of turning off notifications for your own time, given how (laughs) much you've poured into it and how much of you there is in it? Are you capable of turning off notifications for any length of period of time?
1: Oh, my God. Like, at this point, I get anxiety if I don't have my phone attached to me, you know? How did you cope with the plane ride? Or did
0: you get in flight Wi Fi?
1: Of course, I got in flight Wi Fi. <laughs> I would not have come to Australia if I didn't have in flight Wi Fi. <laughs> How do,
0: they, like, how do you cope? Like You must go through periods of yeah. time. You had the time in Jordan where you didn't have anything, right, yeah. in terms of uh, internet access. Do you have the capacity to switch it off?
1: I mean, I'll be honest. I was just thinking about this literally just a couple of days ago. I went through most of high school without a cell phone. And I like, <laughs> was asking myself, like, how did I do that? You yeah, know, yeah. I can't even imagine that now. I think that, yeah, definitely there are moments in time, especially when a lot of things are popping off in the news, especially in the aftermath of, like, a media frenzy, of a terrorist attack and things like that, where it's, like, necessary. Necessary to turn off the notifications at that point just for your own sanity. Um, and then, you know, you, you have to find the time to regroup and then come back to it more stronger than ever. But I think that that is also a privilege, right? It's like, not just anybody can really turn off notifications. We can't turn off the way that today's anti-Muslim age is really impacting us on an everyday basis. You know, like people in Muslim countries that are being militarized by Western nations right now, they can't just turn off bombs and, and drones being dropped on them. Um, and so I think that it's really important for us if if we want to continue contributing to this work, we have to be able to maintain that sanity. It does get really exhausting, but we can't really contribute to the movement if we're not at 100% ourselves. Whether that means turning off your phone, surrounding yourself with people that are like kind of like your support system, um, I think that it's it's necessary, especially as as women, especially as women of color.
0: Amani, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right, It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. This season features guests from the Antidote Program and it was hosted by me, Mark Fennell. There you go. Uh, It's produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiraway, music mix by Evan Williams. We were recorded by Josh Craig, mastered by Cullen Jensen-McKinnon and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. And we will catch you on the next episode of It's a Long Story. Goodbye.